Mark chapter number 12. Mark chapter 12. This is the 26th message in the book of Mark this year. Message number 26. Finding and following Jesus is the label of this series. And uh, that is the mission of our church, helping people find and follow Jesus. In fact, that's why Fellowship Baptist Church exists. Did you know that? We have a lot of good things going on at our church. I really believe that. From, you've heard the music today. The services are wonderful. Kids are having a great time today. Nurseries are great. Connection groups at 945 are, are wonderful. We have a lot of good things. Our Fellowship Baptist Academy is growing. So many good things. But you know what? The, the number one thing for why we do all of what we do is to help people find and follow Jesus. In fact, I would say our church shouldn't be doing anything that doesn't help people find and follow Jesus. The Bible says redeeming the time because the days are evil. We don't got time to mess with piddly stuff. We got to help people get out of hell and into heaven. And we are the means through which that gospel will get to them. Mark chapter 12, we're going to be studying a small section today, verses 13 through 17. The title of the message is this, the owner gets it all. The owner gets it all. If you follow college sports at all, you're probably familiar with a recent Supreme Court ruling that involves college athletes and their image. It's called the NIL, Name, Image, and Likeness. The Supreme Court ruled that these college athletes now have the right to be paid when a company or a brand uses their name, image, or likeness as a means of promotion, promotion or marketing. For instance, if, if you put a quarterback's name on the back of a jersey and sell the jersey, now he has to get a percentage of those earnings. A college athlete can now even autograph a football or a baseball or a basketball and, and sell it for a high price. In fact, at the start of this college football season, one quarterback was selling his autograph for $150 a piece. EA Sports can go back to making video games for college sports, but they're going to have to pay the players now for royalties because they're using their name, image, and likeness. Like it or not, that's just how it is. Now here's the principle that the Supreme Court brought to bear that caused them to rule in favor of the college athlete getting compensated in this way. Here's, here, here's the principle. You own your image. If you were to ask any one of those judges that voted yes, they would say, I based it on that principle. You own your image. Whoever bears your image or your name or your likeness on their t-shirt, their billboard, their commercial, their video game, whoever bears your image that you own, they're going to owe you for it. Now, here's what's interesting. This isn't a new principle thought up by the Supreme Court of the United States. This is actually a principle that Jesus used to answer a trick question in Mark chapter 12 a couple thousand years ago. I say a trick question because of who was asking him the question. Look at your Bible or the screen at verse 13. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. The they there in verse 13 who sent these two groups of people to Jesus were the scribes, the elders, and the chief priests. They called themselves the Sanhedrin. They were in charge of the temple operations. They hated Jesus. They wanted to get Jesus in trouble and get him off the scene. 
They've already tried to argue with him themselves and they lost. So they tried a different technique. They sent two groups of people to him to stump him, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, normally these two groups of people would never work together on anything. They were polar opposites in values and in beliefs. They can be compared perhaps to the Republicans and Democrats of our government today. They just saw the world differently. The Pharisees were anti-Roman government, the more conservative branch. The Herodians were pro-Roman government, the more progressive branch. But it's a funny thing that when they shared a common enemy, they became friends really quick. And here's what united these two groups of people. They both feared one thing. You know what it was? The authority of Jesus. See, for the Pharisees, the authority of Jesus as the Son of God threatened their political influence with the people because Jesus was winning everybody's allegiance. Yet for the Herodians, the authority of Jesus as the Son of God threatened their government's political stability as many believe this Jesus came to overthrow their government. Therefore, these two enemies became friends and they were sent by the Sanhedrin to catch or to trap Jesus in his words. That word catch is the same word they would use in their day to describe somebody violently trapping an animal. So there's nothing nice about what they're about to do. And look at what they asked him in verse 14. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, this, this is called flattery, false flattery. Master, we know that thou art true and cares for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. In other words, they're saying, we know you are a man that is honest, you don't play favorites. You don't have a respect for a person. You're not this way in the temple and this way out of the temple. You're going to tell the truth no matter what. So based on those credentials, we're going to ask you a question that forces you to tell the truth. And here's the question. Is it lawful to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar or not? He said, shall we give or shall we not give? So he's asking the simple question. Jesus, should we pay taxes to the Roman government? See, in this day, there were all kinds of taxes they had to pay. They had to pay taxes on imports, transportation, land, crops, etc. But you know the tax the Jews hated the most? It was called the poll tax. This was a tax not on their lands, their transportation, or their goods, but on their persons. It consisted of one denarius per person Per year, that would have been one day's worth of wages. It was a census tax. So you had to literally pay the Roman government simply because you breathe their air. Now, the reason this question was a tough one was because no matter which way Jesus answered, he'd get himself into trouble. Or so they thought. See, if he answered that they didn't have to pay their taxes, he'd be in trouble by the Herodians for sedition and revolt. And they would go and report his behavior to the Romans where Jesus could be sentenced to prison or even crucifixion for such a crime. Yet if he answered that they should pay their taxes, he'd be in trouble with the Jewish people. They'd be in an uproar because they were taught by the Pharisees that the land of Israel and everything in it belonged to God, not the government. And so paying a tax to pagan idol worshipers such as Rome would be desecrating God's land. See, Jesus finds himself in a pickle. He seems to be in trouble no matter where he goes. But that's when Jesus shocked them all with his answer. Look at verse 15. Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, that's Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, 
said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Why do you test me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. He saith unto them, Whose is this image and, and, and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. So Jesus started off his argument and his answer with an object lesson. He asked for a penny. That would have been a denarius. The same coin they were being asked to give as their poll tax that they hated so much. And on that coin was the image of the Caesar of their day. The emperor who happened to be a man by the name of Tiberius Caesar. And the coin had this inscription on it. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. See, Jesus was making a point that had to do with whose image was on their coin. In fact, he was making the same argument that the Supreme Court uh, made on behalf of the college athletes. You own your image. In this case, Caesar owns his image. His name, his image, and his likeness is his. Because the penny had his image born on it, well, he owned it. And because he owned it, they owed it. See, that's why Jesus said what he said next in the first part of verse 17. He said this, and Jesus answering said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, I hope you're studying with me. The initial question had to do with giving. Remember, they asked Jesus, I think in verse 15, should we give to Caesar or not give to Caesar? Should we pay our taxes or not? When Jesus answered them back after his object lesson, he didn't say, yeah, give to them. He used a different word. He says, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's. Render is more than give. Render means give back. In other words, when it comes to paying taxes, we don't give our taxes as a free gift to the government from the goodness of our heart. Somebody say amen. amen. Oh man, now you're awake. I didn't know if you were or not. I'm going to talk about taxes more. I like that. We don't just give them to them. Hey, Uncle Sam, take our money. What we're doing when we pay our taxes is we're rendering. We're giving back to the government what we owe them or what they think we owe them. Now, paying our taxes is not the main point of this text. But let me go ahead and put park for a second. Talk about it for a minute since Jesus did. God has ordained, I know you know, I know you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. God has ordained three institutions in this world. The family, the church, and the government. It's in scripture. In fact, Jesus proves here that he wasn't anti-government. And we shouldn't be either, by the way. God ordained the government for our safety. Now, it's been abused. We understand that, so let your arms down. I'm not, I'm not going to say that they're doing everything right. But the bottom line is God ordained it. It's an institution provided for our safety and our quality of life. And by the way, our government on their worst day is much better than many other countries' government. So be thankful. And by the way, I'm thankful for those in our church that have, are, and will run for local government. I think that's good. I think if God positions you and gives you a passion to do something like that, I really believe that God ought to raise Christians up from local churches in liberal Kansas to run for local government. And if you're doing that, I'm praying for you. But because God came up with this institution of government, it means that they have the right 
to make laws for our safety. And we have the obligation to obey those laws so long as they don't oppose or contradict God's clear word. The government also has created things like paved roads and interstates and landfills and sewage systems and school districts and hospitals and parks. Why? For the quality of life. That means they have a right to levy taxes on us in order to help pay for those things. Can I get an amen right there? I think our parks are pretty good for a small town and I enjoy them and other things. And they have a right to levy taxes. What we enjoy, we pay for. Now, I'll admit this. Sometimes I feel like the Jewish person. Kind of like we're being overtaxed. And the, the government in some ways has misused and abused the tax for their own agenda. Is that right? Yeah. So praise God for all those politicians that are getting in there to lower our taxes. It does remind me of a letter I, I read that was written by a conscience-stricken taxpayer He wrote it to the IRS. He said, my dear sir, my conscience bothered me. So here's the $175, which I owe in back taxes. Then came a PS. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. (laughs) That's how I feel sometimes, man. I, I just want to keep as much as I can. Taxes are no fun and Most of the time seem a bit unfair to the people. But at the end of the day, Jesus Christ said out of his own mouth, pay them what you owe them. Why? Because what bears their image belongs to them. That's enough talk about taxes because that's not Jesus' main point. He only uses the tax as a metaphor to get to the real point of his argument. Look at verse 17. Jesus answering said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Here's the punchline of the whole text. And to God, the things that are God's. Do you remember what the Pharisees and the Herodians shared in common? They shared a common fear when it came to Jesus and his authority. They were threatened by the idea of him being the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus knew that. The Bible says he knew their hypocrisy. He knew their question had nothing to do with money. He knew their question had nothing to do with taxes. It had everything to do with their refusal to accept him as the divine son of God sent from heaven. So he stuck the dagger in them with that last phrase. He said, if you're going to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and you should, then it's only fair to render to God that which is God's. What is he saying? He's saying Caesar owns his image. And so you give to him what belongs to him in the same way. God owns his image. So give to him what belongs to him. Think about it. Who, what bore Caesar's image? The penny, the denarius. What bears God's image then? We do. Thanks for the interaction. That's the right answer. Based on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and God said, let us make, next word please, man in our image, after our likeness. The penny bears Caesar's image, so it belongs to him. But hey, people, mankind, you and me bear God's image. So guess what? We belong to him. We're God's mint. We're God's currency. I'm not going to take for granted that everybody understands what that means. That everybody understands what it means to be created in God's image. So let me explain very simply. It just, 
It just means most importantly that, that we're created with the capability of having a real relationship with God. See, unlike the rest of his creation, God didn't create the animals as in, in his image or the waters in his image or the plants in his image or the planets in his image. God created people in his image. And he did this because he wanted something to relate with. He wanted something or someone that wasn't robotic or inanimate. He wanted something with a free moral will that would have the capacity to choose a relationship with him based on love. See, being created in God's image means you have the capacity, unlike most other things, to know the difference between right and wrong. Other parts of God's creation just don't have that moral sense like we do. It all boils down to this. Just like Caesar stamped or impressed his image on the currency of his day, God stamped or impressed his image on every human being. And what bears his image, church, belongs to him. This is the heart of the argument to these Pharisees and these Herodians who, who refused to accept Jesus' authority in their life. Jesus looked them dead square in the eye and he said, hey men, you've been created in the image of God. You belong to him and you owe him your life. They wanted to talk about taxes. They wanted to talk about money. They wanted to talk about Caesar and God wanted to talk about their life. And the same exact principle is true for us today. God owns his image. The Supreme Court didn't make that ruling. Genesis 1 made that ruling. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 confirms it to be true. Paul asked the question, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It doesn't get any more clear than that. We're his. We're not our own. You don't own yourself. God owns you. He created you. You belong to him. Therefore you are to give him glory in every area of your life. I'll say it this way, and then we'll go home after I make some application. Because God owns all of you, he should get all of you. That's what he wants us to learn from this. Because God owns all of you, he should get all of you. But let's agree, that's not human tendency. It's not even the tendency, unfortunately, of those who call themselves Christians today. To give God our all is both counterintuitive and it's countercultural, even for those who claim to be followers of Christ. I want to show you by way of an object lesson, kind of like Jesus did, what is the cultural norm in Christianity? Brother Sid, you come and grab that stand. I'll grab this one. Appreciate Brother Sid helping me with this. Can everybody see those okay? That one says spiritual, represents God's bucket, God's box. This one says secular, Caesar's bucket, Caesar's box. And many Christians tend to compartmentalize their life. 
Followers of Christ are only supposed to have one box. But a lot of followers of Christ have at least two. They have a compartment that they call their spiritual life. And they have a compartment called their secular, non-spiritual life. They have a box that they invite God into. And they have a box that they don't invite God into. Let's talk about it a little bit. Let's just start where Jesus started. Money. Oh, I knew when I came to this church they'd talk about money. I don't apologize for it because Jesus never did one time. He talked about money in the four gospels more than he talked about heaven and hell. Why? Because it's so connected to our faith. How you spend your money, what you do with your money, in large part reveals what's inside here. For as your treasure is there, will your heart be also. Your money and your heart are closely connected. So I'm not afraid to talk about it at all. But I have found that many, many Christians have two boxes for their money. They say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give God, I'll give him 10% when I can afford it. I'll drop one in when I come into church. I'll just drop in a generous offering. But 90%, I'll choose what I do with that. God gets his share, but, but he doesn't get it all. Let's talk about time. Unlike money, we all have the same amount of time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Every single one of us have more, have the same exact amount of time. Here's Christianity today. I'll give, I'll give an occasional Sunday morning to God. Oh, oh, I'm coming back for Christmas service too. Oh, one more, one more. I'll be back for Easter. Oh, oh, church is serving a meal. I'll be back for that one too. There's a lot of time left though. I'll give God a little bit when I have some, but it's not really his anyway. Let's talk about your talent for a moment. Some have one talent, some have five, some have a lot. Everybody has gifts given to you by God. Some are genetic, some are just heavenly. And I would imagine there are some in here that they use their talents. But not really for the mission. Not really help people find and follow Jesus. Use your talents for the money. I'll, I'll, I'll help the church when I get a chance. But, but listen, I got small kids and I got to coach all their sports. And, and, and I, got to, I got to be on all these nonprofit boards. And, 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 and I got to give my work the best of my talent. And I'm not against that. But why does God get a slice? Why does he get a slice? He gets a slice of our money, a slice of our time, slice of our talent. The truth is, we're given our energy, we're given our passions, we're given our experience. It's just not for the benefit of the local church. It's not even for the benefit of helping people find and follow Jesus. Everybody else gets our talent, but not God. How about our relationships? Relationships. 
Everybody has them. But I found that, that a lot of Christians go like this. I've got my, I got my church people. And then I got my secular people. I know who I go to church with on Sunday and I know who I party with on Friday. Am I mowing the grass short today? How about politics? God instituted government. And God's given us a unique privilege as Christians in the world today. Not in the world, the United States today. We actually get a vote. You know what else God has given us? A Bible and a brain. Everybody has a brain. Not everybody uses it, but everybody has a brain. Everybody should have a Bible. You can get it on your cell phone for free. What does that mean? That means you don't get to just go into the voting booth without your Bible or your brain attached. When you go and vote for, for the institution that God ordained, you don't get to say, well, I, I kind of I got my church box, but, but then I go into the voting booth and, and, and what, how, you know, what I heard in college and, and how I was raised and what I like, what benefits me, that's what goes to the voting booth with me. No, that's not right. That's not right. God's word should guide every one of your decisions. Every one of your decisions. Career. Some people make their life all about their career. I don't even know if for some people they could tear off a corner. Because when it comes to their career, how they treat their customers, that's not God's business. How they facilitate their business dealings, that's not God's business. How they treat their employees, that's not God's business. How they submit to the authority of their employer or their organization, that's not God's business. How they lie on their taxes or cheat on the time clock, that's not God's business. Are you following me? I guess I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. We give God a sliver. Go with me to work. God bless my business. But how I do business, well, whatever gets the bottom line looking like it should look. Are you getting the idea today? Christians have boxes. And Christians should never have more than one. That doesn't mean followers of Christ don't have jobs and don't try their best to succeed at those jobs. I believe followers of Christ should, should, be, should, should be the most successful in their workplaces because they are the most driven. They are the hardest working, best attitude type people. I believe that. It doesn't mean that followers of Christ don't use their talent within your community. I chair a board. I'm involved in three separate boards. I coach my son and everything because I can't stand other people coaching them. Bugs me. They don't know what they're talking about. I do. Play like four years of basketball, one year of baseball. I got it. I think Christians ought to, I think we ought to saturate the community. We don't have a little sanctified bubble in here where, where we can't be touched by sinners on the outside. Give me a break. Jesus sat at the table with publicans and sinners. If you aren't involved in your community, you need to be. It doesn't mean that followers of Christ have only friends who go to church with them and no one else. 
It, it doesn't mean that followers of Christ only sit around and pray on Friday nights and never go enjoy something outside of their living room. It doesn't mean followers of Christ have to give 100% of their money to God or the church. It doesn't mean that followers of Christ have a church activity seven days a week on their calendar. But you know what it does mean? It means when a follower of Christ goes to work, they take God with them. It means a follower of Christ is a Christian on Sunday and he's a Christian on Monday. It means that a follower of Christ is a spiritual person when they're with their church friends and when they're at the work Christmas party this December. It means that a follower of Christ uses their God-given talent and time and money and energy both in church and abroad, but they do it all under God's authority. It means that everything Christian in your life belongs to God. Jesus never left open the option of selective commitment. There's no exception clauses. You don't get to say, I follow Jesus, but when it comes to this area of my life, I do things my way. No, if you call yourself a Christian, by definition, you are committing to following Christ with every area of your life. It doesn't mean you'll follow him perfectly, but you can't say I'm a Christian and then refuse to follow Christ when it comes to certain people or certain places or certain practices. Why? Because God owns all of you and he should get all of you. I'm here to tell you today, stop giving God some. Stop giving God a little. Stop giving God what extra you have. Stop even giving God most of you. Give God your all. Why? Because he gave you his. Corinthians says you're bought with a price. You didn't pay that price, but it was a high one. It was his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And the price of, of Jesus came by way of his spotless, precious, perfect blood that was shed on a cross at Calvary, was buried for three days and three nights, but rose again. Why? So that he could purchase you. And, and when he purchased you, you belong. To him. How selfish for us to say, God gave me his all, but I'm going to give him my sum. God gave me his all, but I'm going to give him a little. God gave me his all, but if I get around to it, I'll start doing more. I look at our growth steps. See, this is why I love our growth steps. We wanted to make them visible and tangible so that you get an idea of what it means to grow more and more and more into the image of Christ, which is your purpose in life. We don't put these growth steps on the wall because, well, once you get all five checked off, now you're a real Christian. We don't put these growth steps on the wall to give you some kind of test to take every week to see if you're in favor with God. We don't put these growth steps on the wall to make you feel guilty about the fact that you haven't done two or three. That, that would defeat the purpose. We ought to be motivated by love. 
motivated by the fact that God gave his all for us. We give those to you just to give you a map. Just to give you some tangible steps that you can work on in your Christian life. The first one is believe. I hope that you believed in Jesus as the son of God. You can't try to put your life together. You can't try to do spiritual things in your life if you've never invited Jesus into your life. That's the first step. But if you've done that, listen, that's only where the Christian life begins. It doesn't end with saying, I'm going to heaven when I die. It only begins there. We would call on you as the Bible calls upon you in every one of the epistles to become part of a local body of Christ. To become part of a visible, tangible body of believers by saying, I'm going to commit to joining a God-centered, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching, sinner-loving church. I happen to think this is a good one. That's not enough either because I think there are over 50 commands or implications in the, in, in the New Testament that refer to us and one another. In other words, there's a multitude of commands that, that involve this, you doing the Christian life with other Christians. And, and that's why we have connection groups. We take this large congregation of over 400 every week and we shrink it down to groups of 10 or 15 or 20 or 30. And you pick one and, and, and we discuss the previous Sunday morning sermon and we, we give each other prayer requests. And it's about 45 minutes long. It's a good time together. And then, and then grow. We, we have evening services here because we really believe the more you go, the more you grow. Athletes believe that. Financial investors believe that. Uh, uh, nutritionists believe that. Like you give your body the best chance to be what it needs to be when you exercise right and you diet right. And the more you do it, the better you're going you're gonna to be. And we just give a tangible step. We, get, we, we, we put some teeth to that, some, some shoe leather to that. And we say, you know what? You ought to come back on Sunday night at six o'clock for a good service. You ought to come back, bring your kids with you to our kids clubs on Wednesday night. Come in here for a Bible study on Wednesday night. A good crowd on Sunday nights, over 250 people. A good crowd on Wednesday night, like last Wednesday, is over 300 people in our building. We don't do that just to check off a box. We really believe we need to be here together. You're not giving your everything until you're actually using your talents for the glory of God. Serving through his local church, helping people with your passion and your experience and your talents to find and follow Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if after having those growth steps explained, I wonder if, if you put yourself against them and say, God, where am I at in, 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 in that metric? Where, where am I at in that map of spiritual growth? Where, where do you fall? What's the next step for you to take? Does it reflect the fact that you're giving God your all or just some? Can I kind of encourage you? Don't be happy with just giving God some. Don't be happy until you feel like you're doing your best to give God your all. I'm going to close my sermon with an article. It's sarcastic. It's from my favorite satire social media account called Babylon B. Your day would be helped if you would subscribe. They said hymnal publishers from around the nation confirmed Wednesday the release of new updated hymnals containing a new version of I Surrender All, among other refreshes and enhancements. The new version of the tune entitled I Surrender Some 
was written to refresh outdated language and outdated theology contained in the 1896 song, according to hymnal authorities. I quote, Babylon B said, singing words like all to Jesus I surrender just isn't in line with modern Christianity. Now, Christians can sincerely belt out lines like some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I conditionally give. They can sing that without worrying if their hearts really line up with the lyrics. It was our desire to preserve these time-honored hymns while also making the lyrics so much more singable for the modern audience. And here's the lyrics to their updated song, I Surrender Some. Some to Jesus I surrender. Some to Him I freely give. I will sometimes love and trust Him in His presence Sometimes live, I surrender some, I surrender some, some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. I'm thinking none of us have ever sung those lyrics with our mouth, but many of us live those lyrics with our lives. A song that's been sung in the church since the 1800s reveals maybe the most hypocritical part of Christianity today. Does God have your all? Really? He should. Because you belong to Him. He owns His image. And that means He owns you. And that means He should get all of you. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Stand to your feet every head.